Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Monster Goes On. I am Alex, and I am here with... Marco. And we're going to be finishing up our story on... What was the name? The Toolbox Killers. <laughs> the Toolbox Killers. Okay. So, when we last left off, we were talking about uh, Bittaker and Norris's history. So, we know that they had a lot of... Uh, background in well norris had a lot of background in attempting to rape women uh breaking into their attempting to break into their vehicles their homes that kind of stuff and then we had bitteker who was very very intelligent and he had an incredibly rough childhood he ended up getting locked up for uh committing violent crimes uh, i believe the last one he did was he ended up uh stabbing a a worker at a grocery store when he was attempting to steal, I think it was a steak. Yeah. And the worker went to confront him, and he ended up stabbing him in the chest. Which is insane to... I mean, that's a, that must have been a a really good steak. <laughs> it must have been. But it makes me wonder if he was like legitimately starving, or if this is just something he was like, I can get away with this. Yeah, probably. I mean, I, I've seen people like... I don't know, you kind of confront them, they get real defensive. So maybe maybe it was one of those things where he got caught, and he didn't know what to do other than like, Attack. Probably. I mean, that's what I would imagine. <clears throat> so, after they went to prison, they met and they found out that they shared the common interest of wanting to torture and rape young women. And they made the promise that when they got out of prison, they would continue with their plan that they made to rape, torture, and kill a girl of every teenage year, ranging from 13 to 19. Upon leaving the prison, Bitteker ended up getting a very high-paying job mm -hmm. working in aircraft manufacturing. And then Norris got a job using his prior military experience to become an electrician. So both fairly respectable jobs. But they decided to turn that all away and move forward with this plan. I guess when you're committed, you're committed, but that's that's insane. The last thing we talked about was they finished purchasing their GMC cargo van that they nicknamed Murder Mac, and they were ready to begin their reign of terror. So, from February to June of 1979, Bitteker and Norris conducted test runs where they would drive up and down the Pacific Coast Highway, stopping at different beaches to talk to girls and take their pictures. During this time, they picked up over 20 female hitchhikers, but they never assaulted a single one of them. Norris would state that these were just practice runs to develop rules and lure girls into the van voluntarily to discover secluded locations. Okay, so they were practicing... They, they practiced how to... Okay, that's okay. They they were very committed then cuz they were they were trying to figure out the best way to get people into their van. They didn't want to mess up. They wanted to figure out the best way to go about it, how they could do this without causing a big scene and just get away with it. Even among those 20 girls, as lucky as they are that nothing crazy happened, they stuck to their plan and they waited. Now that April the pair found an isolated fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains. Bitteker broke open the lock that was on the access gate, and he actually replaced it with his own lock so he can access that road whenever he needed to. Now, I'm not entirely sure about Norris because he was so impulsive in a lot of his previous crimes. He was very opportunistic. But Bitteker seems like he would be categorized as an organized killer. He was highly intelligent and well-organized to the point of being meticulous. I'm sure he would have had every detail planned out, and he would have been sure to take all precautions to leave little to no evidence behind, which is exactly how you would define an organized killer. But as we go into the actual murders, the crimes seem to be much more opportunistic and seem to fall in line with the M.O. of a disorganized killer, so I really want to hear what your thoughts are on this after we're done. Um, Bitteker, um, and just trying to remember back, Bitteker's the one that looks like a, like a gremlin, right? Like he's short. Huge forehead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With yeah. the giant glasses, if I remember, or no He glasses. didn't have glasses. He just had the big forehead. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. He's still scary looking. Yeah. 
Okay, when we're done. Uh, so far, it just seems like uh, Bittaker is very smart at getting what he wants. And um, Norris is dumb <laughs> and easily manipulated. That's what it seems like, right? Yeah. Okay, well, let's get into this and see how we feel afterwards. Lucinda Lynn Schaefer, known to her friends and family as Cindy, was staying with her grandparents in Redondo Beach for the summer while her mother went to Mexico City for business. She picked up a job to earn some extra cash, and by all accounts, she was a very responsible 16-year-old girl. On June 2nd of 1979, Cindy's grandmother dropped her off at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church at 7.25 p.m. to attend the Senior High Fellowship meeting. After the meeting, she was seen walking northbound on, along the Pacific North Highway, ah, the Pacific Coast Highway, and that's where Norris spotted her. Norris and Bideker were in Redondo Beach since 11 a.m., drinking beer, smoking pot, flirting with girls. Per his own account, Norris states that around 7.45 p.m., he spotted Schaefer walking down the side of the street and pointed her out to Bideker. The two tried offering Cindy some pot and a ride home, but Cindy declined. So undeterred, the two took the van and they circled around the block and parked up ahead of the, where she was walking. Norris opened the side door and stepped out of the van, pretending to be working on a light while leaning inside so his head and shoulders were still inside the van. Bittaker sat behind the wheel, and as Cindy walked past the van, Norris ran up behind her, put his hand over her mouth, picked her up, and threw her in the van. Cindy was less than two blocks away from her grandmother's house. Oh, that sucks. The moment they were inside the van, Bittaker drove off in a hurry. He turned up the radio so that any of her screams would be drowned out, and Norris proceeded to tape her wrist and her ankles. They drove up to the San Gabriel Mountains, where Bittaker stopped the van to unlock the gate for the fire road they had previously switched the locks for a month earlier, and they drove through the gate and just around the first bend. So do those, like roads are are they like is it like private property or is it like public property that's what i'm not understanding is like does no one go out there to at all like ever to to see what's happening or i think the property itself is actually part of the uh like the national forest or whatever oh so probably nobody goes out there but yeah and so these roads they're the ones that you see like when you're driving through the grapevine mm. and they're these random little dirt paths that leads you up the mountains. Oh, yeah, it's I got those you. kind of roads. So those are locked. Those are specifically designed for if there is a wildfire. Okay, so firefighters have access. Oh, I got you. So yeah, nobody goes up there unless they have to go up there. Right. Despite initially screaming when she was abducted, Schaefer quickly regained her composure. In his own written account of the night that followed, Bittaker wrote, and I quote: "Schaefer displayed mag a magnificent state of self-control." and composed acceptance of the condition of which she had no control. She shed no tears, offered no resistance, and expressed no great concern for her safety. I guess she knew what was coming. So she just kind of accepted that she's going to die? That's according to him. And again, most of this stuff that we're going over now actually comes from their own testimonies. Oh, okay. So the, so we don't really know if it's exactly what happened. It's just what they are saying is what happened. Exactly. Once at the fire road, Norris and Bittaker had a discussion about who would be the first person to rape Cindy. Bittaker told Norris to go first since he's the one who took all the risk in grabbing her and throwing her in the van. Norris then asked Bittaker to go ahead and take a walk and return in an hour so he could do what he wanted to do. Norris then raped Cindy until Bittaker returned. And similarly, Bittaker then raped Cindy in Norris's absence. After the two raped her multiple times, Cindy asked Norris if they were going to kill her, to which he replied, no. Norris states he even apologized to her and told her that they would pay her. He wrote down his name, address, phone number, all on a sheet of paper in case she would ever want anything to, for them to pay her back. Outside of the van, however, Norris and Bittaker had a 90-minute discussion about what to do now. Both of these cowards gave conflicting accounts as to who argued over whether they should kill Cindy or release her. 
each stating that the other wanted to kill her. Accepting her fate, Cindy asked the two if they would let her pray before killing her. But the two didn't give her the chance. With the cigarette still in his mouth, Bitteker would walk up to Cindy from behind and held her up in the air so her feet couldn't get any traction, as Norris strangled her for about 45 seconds. Norris says he looked into her eyes as she was crying and gasping for air and was so disturbed he let go of her neck and ran to the front of the van to vomit. So he didn't so she he didn't finish what he was doing because he was freaked out. Yeah. He, uh, he saw what he was doing and panicked. What what still throws me off is the did he really put his information on a piece of paper, like his real information? That's according to him. Because it, at that point, it's like, they think she's not going to get away. But if she gets away with a piece of paper with all their information, that's that's going to be an embarrassing capture. <laughs> I agree. Now, I do think, though, that Norris is, again, this is all from his and Bidiger's testimony. And I think that Norris is just saying a lot of this stuff to try to get some kind of, I guess, lesser sentence for the eventual trial that they're going to have. Okay, yeah. Norris is the dumb one, right? Yeah. Or the one that I think is the dumb one. <laughs> exactly. Bitteker then strangled her himself until she fell to the ground and began convulsing. He then grabbed a wire coat hanger from the van and twisted it around her neck with a pair of vice grip pliers so tight that the hanger began to cut through her throat. Schaefer's body was wrapped in a plastic shower curtain and thrown over a steep canyon. According to Norris, Bitteker assured him the animals would eat her up so there would be no evidence left. On July 8th, 1979, two weeks after they murdered Cindy Schaefer, Bitteker and Norris came across 18-year-old Andrea Joy Hall, who had just finished eating at McDonald's in Manhattan Beach with her friends. She decided to go on her own and hitchhike her way to Redondo Beach along the Pacific Coast Highway to go see her boyfriend. So is this like the, because uh... I know back in the day it was like acceptable to like hitchhike. Is this around the time where it slowly stopped being acceptable because it became like more dangerous or, or is it just during the time that people started like paying attention to the fact that it was dangerous? I think that the events that happened during this time with Bitteker and Norris caused a lot more caution when it came to hitchhiking mm. because there's accounts where you can, in different interviews, you can uh, hear the parents of these kids and they're saying, yeah, my kids said they wanted to go hitchhike to the beach. So of course I let them. It what was the that fuck? common. They weren't doing it against like their parents, you know, wills or whatever. It was just such a normal thing to do apparently. Yeah. Cause I remember hearing that like back, like way back, I don't know what way back means, but like a long time ago, <laughs> um, at least before the eighties and seventies, um, or early seventies, at least I, I, I remember hearing a lot of stories about like people hitchhiking and, and how, yeah, how normal it was. And it was just like a, an acceptable way to get around. No one like batted an eyelash at, or is that the saying batted an eyelash? I think so. <laughs> Uh, at, at the fact that people were doing that. But nowadays, you go hitchhiking, people are like, are you insane? Do you have a death sentence? Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, even being the one driving, if you're like, hey, I picked up a hitchhiker, everybody's going to be like, why the fuck would you do that? Yeah, you're, are you insane? <laughs> what the hell is wrong with you? Yeah, either way. doesn't matter if you're the hitchhiker or the driver. You, you don't do that now. Yeah, for sure. Anyways, um, so this time, Bittaker told Norris to hide under the bed in the back of the van. He figured he could trick Andrea into thinking he was the only person in the vehicle, making it more likely that she would accept the ride. So Norris hid behind a bedspread that hung down the front of the bed all the way to the floor. The two had rehearsed this plan before and decided that Bittaker's signal for Norris to take action would be to offer the potential victim a cold drink from the cooler that was in the back of the van and Norris could then catch the victim by surprise. So Bittaker drove up to Andrea, offered her a ride, which she accepted, 
He drove only a few blocks before offering Andrea a cold drink from the cooler, and Norris laid in wait as he watched Andrea grab a drink through a split in the bedspread. As she closed the cooler, Norris slid out from under the bed, and Andrea darted for the front of the van. She fought against Norris viciously before he managed to twist her arm behind her back and subdued her. She told them she would do anything they wanted as long as they didn't hurt her. Norris then gagged her with duct tape and bound her wrists and ankles. Bittaker and Norris drove Andrea to a location in the San Gabriel Mountains a little further down the same fire road they had previously taken Cindy Schaefer. Once they parked, she was raped twice by Bittaker and once by Norris. While Bittaker was raping Andrea for the second time, Norris saw what he believed to be vehicle's headlights approaching. He alerted Bittaker, who then clasped his hands over Andrea's mouth and dragged her into the nearby bushes. Norris took the van down the fire road in search of the vehicle he had seen, but was unable to find any signs of potential witnesses and came back. So obviously, the two got spooked, but rather than ending this nightmare Andrea was enduring, they drove deeper into the San Gabriel Mountains. Andrea was ordered to walk up the hill naked alongside the road before Bittaker ordered Andrea to pose for several Polaroid pictures. The two got Andrea back into the van and drove to a third and final location. Bittaker took Andrea out of the van while Norris drove to a nearby store to purchase alcohol. When Norris returned, he found Bittaker was alone and had two more photos in his possession. Norris described both of these photos to be of Andrea's face with a look of sheer terror as she begged for her life to be spared. According to Norris, Bittaker informed him that while he was gone, Bittaker told Andrea he was going to kill her and challenged her to give him as many reasons as she could come up with as to why she should be allowed to live. He then thrusted an ice pick through her ear into her brain, turned her body over, and thrust the ice pick into the other ear and stomped on it until the handle broke. He then strangled her for good measure before throwing her body over the nearby cliff. I wouldn't. I don't. Know, I don't know about for good measure at that point. What the? If he's so, I'm assuming she was on her side, and he when he thrust the pick in, and he turned over on her other side thrust the pick in and stomped it out because that's the only way that i can see that happening but at that point like if you're stomping an ice pick into someone's head i don't see the point in strangling them afterwards i don't either i mean the only way that i could see that happening is if he's just so wrapped up in the moment like maybe her body kept twitching or something Mm -hmm. and he freaked out i don't know but it sounds like he's like full of anger it does. Absolutely it does. I mean, it could have just been a sense of hyper-violence where he's just, like, completely taking out all of his aggression, even though the body or the girl's already dead. Almost two months later, on September 3rd, Bittaker and Norris spotted two girls, Jackie Doris Gilliam and Jacqueline Leah Lamp, sitting at a bus stop near Hermosa Beach. Now, because their names are Jacqueline and Jackie... To avoid any confusion, I'm going to be referring to Jacqueline by her middle name, which is Leah, as she was known to her family and friends. So, Leah and Jackie had been hitchhiking again along the Pacific Coast Highway. Now, this is the one where I was telling you that they did the interview with the parents, and the mom was just like, yeah, they were going to go hitchhike their way over there, and we were going to meet them there later. It was just such a common occurrence. It just, it just does not make sense to me. It doesn't, but also, if you look at a map from where they were, they were literally one to two miles away from the beach. So it's not like they were going to the next town over. Yeah, but I mean, like, I I don't feel like there's more violence nowadays. I just feel like it's more documented, I guess. Like, there's, I feel like there's been crazy people always, and I feel like, like it stuff happens all the time and that's so just the fact that you're willing to take that chance that the person who's giving you a ride is not insane is insane to me (laughs) i know but i do understand what you're saying i mean there's a specific reason why we don't do these things now yeah because of this basically now bittaker and norris approached the girls and offered them a ride to which they agreed Inside the van, 
Nora started to talk to the girls and offered them some pot, which they accepted. What the girls must have thought was just a couple of nice guys giving them a ride and sharing their pot quickly started to spiral as the girls noticed Bideker took the van off of the Pacific Coast Highway and was heading towards the San Gabriel Mountains. Both girls protested as the coast disappeared in the distance, so Norris and Bideker tried to dismiss the girls' concerns with a bunch of excuses. Leah, only 13 years old, attempted to open the sliding door as they approached an intersection when she was struck in the back of the head by Norris wielding a bag filled with lead weights, which briefly knocked her unconscious. Yeah, hey, lead weights, you know, like um, the ones that they use for fishing? Oh. Yeah, so the little ones. So he, oh, I was like, who the hell carries a bag of lead weights? No, he just, had, yeah, well, I mean, if you're a fisher, you probably have them. Yeah, okay, so they're. That make that makes sense. I was thinking like lead bars in a bag, like they're just walking around with them. <laughs> just a bunch of lead bars. No, <laughs> I mean, but that has to be a lot of lead weights for to knock her out. I would imagine. I mean, she's only thirteen, and he's a grown man. That's true too. I mean, I feel like even if he would have just punched her in the back of the head, she probably would have been pretty dazed. Yeah, All right. I got you. I got you. He then quickly overpowered the fifteen-year-old Jackie. Now, as Norris was binding Jackie's hands and feet, Leah regained consciousness and tried jumping out of the van. Norris quickly grabbed Jackie's arm and shouted for Bideker to help. Bideker stopped the van and exited the vehicle to run to the side door. Leah had managed to open the door and was already stepping out of the van when Bideker punched her in the face and threw her back in. He then helped Norris finish binding the two girls and as they were about to leave, Bideker noticed two people playing tennis nearby were watching, and he shouted to them that she was just on a bad acid trip before taking off. Oh, so they saw him punch her. What the? She's 13 years old. This 13-year-old girl's on a bad acid trip. Don't worry about it. I, apparently, man. I don't know. Again, this is his account. So who knows exactly how things went down? But... Was that just that common back then? That you know, you see old dudes hanging out with thirteen-year-old girls. Yeah, and I mean, where were they at this point? Weren't they? In, you say they're in the mountains already, or no? They're they're approaching the mountain. They're still, I believe, in Rodondo Beach. Oh, so the oh, so they're like in town, and some people are playing tennis, and just watch them deck a, a girl in the face yeah. and throw her in the van. Maybe. Like, oh, it's cool, guys. She's she's on drugs. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Now, Jackie and Leah were taken up to the San Gabriel Mountains, where they were held captive for almost two days, during which Jackie would endure hours of physical and sexual abuse. Oh, so they kept these two the longest. Yeah. Now, the two girls were made to sleep next to these monsters in the back of the van during the night. During these two days... Bideker took several photos of the girls and even had Norris take pictures of himself with Jackie. He went as far as making a tape recording of himself raping her. If that wasn't disturbing enough, for the recording, he made her pretend to be his cousin and encouraged her to express her pain. Oh, so it got even weirder than... Oh, God. Okay. Yeah, I mean, what you're going to see is as they keep going and going... It gets weirder and more violent. It's like they just keep stepping things up more and more and more. It's kind of like a like a drug addict trying to get that high. They need more to, to reach it. Exactly. For whatever reason, there's not a lot of information regarding what happened to Leah during these two days. But one thing that is known through their own testimony is that on the last afternoon, Bitteker left Leah tied to a tree while they took Jackie down the road where they took turns raping her for several hours. They eventually returned for Leah and told both the girls they would be taking them home soon. So, Leah, apparently, according to both of them, they didn't rape. Mm. Only Jackie. See, what... I just don't understand the, the whole point of telling them that... Is it, is it just to keep them from fighting them? Like, telling them, like, oh, we're going to let you go, or... I think so. I mean, if you put somebody in a situation where they know they're going to die, they're going to fight with every ounce of their life. So they're like, 
psychologically screwing them too. So to keep them calm, like, oh, we're gonna let you go home soon. So don't. There's no point in fighting it. Just just sit back and relax. Yeah, I mean, if these girls honestly believed them that they were gonna be let go, they would probably try not to, you know, erupt in emotion or anger or whatever it happened to be, hmm. for fear that they would change their mind. Yeah, that's true too. After almost two days of living through this nightmare, Jackie and Leah were murdered. At Bittaker's trial, Norris claimed that he suggested they kill Jackie quickly as she had been submissive and cooperative throughout her captivity. But Bittaker replied, no, they only die once anyways. Bittaker tortured Jackie by stabbing at her breast with an ice pick and using vice grip pliers to tear off pieces of her nipple. He then struck Jackie in each ear with an ice pick but when she didn't succumb to her injuries, both men took turns strangling her until she died. Bittaker then forced Leah out of the van, and he yelled at her, You want to stay a virgin? Now you can die a virgin. Norris then struck Leah in the head with a sledgehammer. Bittaker strangled Leah until she appeared deceased. She opened her eyes one last time before Norris began striking her repeatedly in the head with a sledgehammer as Bittaker strangled her again. Both girls' bodies were thrown over the edge of the cliff, the ice pick still in Gillian's head. Bittaker and Norris returned to work the next day. So they just go back to work like nothing ever happened? Like they didn't just murder two, two kids? Yeah. Bittaker and Norris's final victim was 16-year-old Lynette Ledford. So, oh, sorry. So, so at this point, did they just give up on the whole age thing? They're just like, whoever comes and is coming, and that's it. That's kind of what it seemed like. I mean, it seems like they, the more that they were going through this process, they just, their whole plan kind of started going out the window. Yeah, so they're just like, oh, we're just going to kill whoever feels right. Now, on October 31st, 1979, Lynette went with a friend to a Halloween party around 8 p.m. After a few hours they got a ride with a couple of boys they met at the party. The driver stopped at a gas station and asked everyone to chip in for gas. Lynette's friend gave them what she had, but Lynette herself didn't have any money on her. This caused the driver to start an argument with Lynette, who got mad and left the car. She decided to hitchhike herself back home. Investigators believe that Lynette knew and recognized Bittaker, as he was a regular at the restaurant she waitressed at which would have made her more comfortable to ask him for a ride. According to Norris's testimony, both he and Bittaker were driving to a motel when some girl on the side of the road yelled, Hey! Bittaker turned the van around and offered Lynette a ride, which she accepted. Lynette sat in the passenger seat and started giving Bittaker directions to her house. After following her directions for a few blocks, Bittaker turned down a small side street and started driving faster. Eventually, the pavement ended and it became a dirt road. Once on the dirt road, Bittaker immediately stopped the van, grabbed Lynette, and threw her into the back of the van on top of Norris, knocking him over. Bittaker followed with the knife out and pounced on her and told Norris to drive. Norris made his way to the freeway with the radio blaring while Bittaker bound Lynette with duct tape. Bittaker eventually came up to the passenger seat, turned the radio down, and got out his, his tape recorder. Instead of heading to their usual spot in the mountains, Norris drove around aimlessly throughout Los Angeles for an hour. The entire time, Bittaker was in the back of the van, torturing and raping Lynette as the tape recorder rolled on. Bittaker tormented Lynette, at first by slapping her and mocking her. He then beat her with his fist repeatedly, shouting at her to say something. As she began to scream, Bittaker shouted for her to scream louder. So yeah, you're right. He's getting more, at least Tim. It, it seems like Norris is just Norris. But it, Bittaker's getting increasingly insane. Yeah. It seems like Norris is just kind of there. Yeah. Like he's going along with it, but it's like Bittaker's losing his mind more and more every time they do something else. As she screamed, Bittaker kept beating her and asking her, What's the matter? Don't you like to scream? As Lynette began to cry, she pleaded with Bittaker repeatedly, saying, No, don't touch me. 
Bideker again ordered her to scream. Bideker then began to alternate between striking her breast with his fist and with the hammer. He then tortured her with pliers between instances of raping and sodomizing her. Lynette can be heard repeatedly begging for the torture to end, yelling, no, no, no. Norris described hearing screams, constant screams, pouring from the back of the van as he drove. Norris and Bideker eventually switched places, and Norris turned the tape recorder back on. The first thing you can hear on the recording is Norris shouting at Lynette, go ahead and scream, or I'll make you scream. And Lynette is heard replying, I'll scream if you stop hitting me. She is then heard screaming as Norris encourages her. Norris can be... Oh, good. Wait, this is... Okay, I got lost. So is, so is this now Norris in the back? Yeah. Or this is the after after they like took turns? or. So Bideker just finished doing what he wanted with her. And then they switch places. So now Bideker is driving around throughout Los Angeles. Okay. Norris can be heard pulling the sledgehammer from the toolbox as Lynette pleads with him. Norris struck Lynette on the elbow and she screams that he broke it. She begged him not to hit her again. He struck her on that same elbow 25 more times. Jesus Christ. You can hear it in the recording. Just thud after thud after thud. The elbow? A few moments later, the recorder was turned off. After two hours of torture, Bideker convinced Norris to kill Lynette, stating that he had killed all the other girls, so now it was Norris's turn. Oh, yeah, it was Bideker that killed all the other girls. Bideker killed all the other ones. Norris took a wire hanger and tightened it around Lynette's neck until it was roughly the size of a silver dollar. Oh, jeez. According to Norris, Lynette's last words as she lay there with her body broken were, do it. Just kill me. Bideker convinced Norris that they should leave her body in a random yard of someone's house to see how the media was going to react. What the fuck? So now, so now Bideker, I think, is, is he kind of wants recognition for his insanity. That's what it sounds like. Like, kind of like, um... Who was it? It was at the BTK that that kind of just wanted recognition. Like, I want people to know what I'm doing, but at the same time, I don't want to get in trouble for it. Exactly. Yeah. He he create he started writing letters right to the police and things like that, and he gave himself the name and did that whole deal. He wanted that recognition, and this is where these Bittakers seems to be going. So the two drove to a random house in Sunland and threw Lynette's nude body in a bed of ivy in somebody's front yard. Her body was found by a jogger the next morning. An autopsy revealed that in addition to having been sexually violated, she had died of strangulation after receiving extensive blunt force trauma to the face, breast, and elbow. With her ole... How do you pronounce that? Olecranon? Oh, shit. I don't... Olecranon? It's apparently a bone that's right at the elbow. I have never heard of the Olecranon. Go ahead and pull it up. Olecranon. We'll just say that that's how you say it. Okay, cool. Because there's anyway, nowhere else. But it is a bone in the elbow, right? Yes. Okay. So, her Olecranon sustained multiple fractures. I'm going to get so much shit from Catherine if I'm pronouncing this wrong. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to be like, that's not how you say that. 100%. Anyways... So it's sustaining multiple fractures. Her genitalia and rectum had been torn, caused in part by Bideker having inserted pliers inside of her body. In addition, her left hand bore puncture wounds and her fingers had been slashed. In early November 1979, Norris became reacquainted with Joseph Jackson, a friend he met at the California men's colony in San Luis Obispo. If you remember, this is where Norris and Bideker also met. Norris confided in Jackson that he and Bideker had murdered some young girls in the area and even gave him graphic details of the murder of Lynette Ledford. Norris told him about three other incidences where he and Bideker had abducted some young girls who actually managed to escape, including one girl who they raped and then released. So are they lying to him then? No. 
So this is that this these actually happen. Yes. They actually did release someone. Having heard this, it scared Jackson because he had two young girls himself, aged 13 and 17, that lived in the area. And knowing that these two were cold-blooded murderers, he also feared for himself, thinking that they would kill him because he could potentially be a witness against them. Jackson, having had his own run-in with the law, had an attorney which he consulted. His attorney advised him to inform the authorities. Jackson agreed, and his attorney arranged a meeting with a detective at the Hermosa Beach Police Department. Jackson met with Detective Paul Bynum and disclosed all the information Norris had given him, including details about the silver van Murder Mac, which rang a bell for Detective Bynum. A month earlier, a young woman reported being kidnapped and raped by two men in the van, but there were no major leads on the case. Detective Bynum dispatched an investigator to visit the young woman who was now living in Oregon. With the photo lineup, she immediately identified both Bittaker and Norris as the ones who abducted her. Now, police didn't know where Bittaker was, as he often stayed in motels, but they knew where to find Norris, and they kept him under surveillance. Almost immediately, they catch him violating his parole. On November 20th, 1979, police were out on the street in front of Norris's Redondo Beach apartment, and from the street, they were able to see Norris preparing and weighing marijuana for distribution. So I imagine the window was just wide open, and these guys were just like, what is this guy doing? I guess when you've murdered several people and raped a bunch and not gotten caught at that point you're just like i'm untouchable maybe or he's really dumb like you said oh yeah or he's re- i still feel like he's really dumb <laughs> i mean because it, it if you look at up to what we've talked about bitterker did kill everyone and it took bitterker telling him to kill someone in, in order for him to do it so i, I feel like like he's just kind of doing whatever bitterker says He was immediately apprehended, and police searched his properties. Upon searching a vehicle Norris owned, police found several photographs of young women and girls. Norris denied harming any of them. Bittaker realized that the police were on to him when he placed a call to Norris, and the police officer answered the phone, pretending to be another one of Norris's friends. But Bittaker had a very high IQ, and was able to put two and two together and realize it was a trap being set for him. I think at that point he probably just like, Norris ain't got no fucking friends. Uh, So the fact that this guy's answering the phone saying I'm Norris's friend, he's like, "Mm, mm, probably I've been been killing people with this guy and he don't got no friends. (laughs) No, Norris is my friend. I'm his only friend. So... Yeah, so I can picture him like, oh, this is Norris' friend. Like, mm, no, no, that's this is immediately a trap. <laughs> he just gets all jealous. Like, You're <laughs> Norris's friend. We made jewelry together. <laughs> Anyways, Bittaker drove up to the Hollywood Hills quickly and buried all of his torture tapes because he did record some of the other rapes. Upon returning to his motel room, he was arrested for the Hermosa Beach rape, the girl who managed to escape and filed a report. So oh. that's what they arrested him on. So, the, yeah, I know I know that they've said that, like, um, instead of waiting to get all the evidence for, like, the major crimes, they, they take them in for, like, the smaller things and then try to, like, I guess, get the rest out of them while they're in custody. Because at that point, they can try to kind of convince them, like, oh, we already know what you've been doing. Now we just have to get you to say it out loud. At first, Bittaker was cooperative, and as they searched his property, they found photos of young girls, and Bittaker offered to show the police the rest of the photos they didn't even initially find, knowing that there were technically nothing illegal about taking pictures of people. Oh, was it not nude pictures? It was just like random... Just pictures of people. Oh, that's... I mean, that's not, I guess that's not legal, but that's fucking weird. It's weird. Hell yeah, it is. He's like, yeah, I'll show you the fucking pictures. I mean. Like, here, check out this whole collection. Yeah, I mean, I'm just a creep, but I haven't done anything illegal. Bittaker and Norris were individually asked about the missing girls, and both claimed their innocence. 
until Bitteker's van was impounded and thoroughly searched. Inside the van, they found another 500 photos of women, along with jewelry from the victims, an assortment of tools, a list of police broadcasting frequencies, and the torture tape of Lynette Ledford, which Bitteker had misplaced. I, don't, I can't say he's dumb. He's just careless. He probably... Well, when he took the other tapes to bury them, oh, he, he did it in a panic. Yeah. I don't know why I'm picturing just them, like, scooping up, like... <laughs> like just two armfuls, just grabbing them yeah, off like, the bed or something. And then just, like, running just... into the hills <laughs> to throw them in a hole. He's just, like, dropping tapes as he's running. Lynette's mother had to listen to the tape of her daughter being tortured and mocked in order to verify as evidence that the voice of the young girl was in fact her daughter. That's horrifying. I can't imagine. I mean, I'm not I'm not a parent, but I can't imagine being put in that situation where you have to listen to a torture tape to verify that your daughter is being tortured. Investigators were able to verify that the other two voices on the recording belonged to Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Norris. Inside Norris's apartment, police discovered a bracelet he had taken from Lynette Ledford's body as a souvenir. On November 30th, Norris attended a preliminary hearing in relation to the Hermosa Beach rape. At the time, the police didn't have anything to tie Norris to the missing girls and the murder of Lynette Ledford other than the tape recording they had found. The issue was that Bittaker stated the tape was nothing more than a recording of them both participating in a threesome and without more concrete evidence the district attorney wouldn't be able to get a conviction. They could say that it was just role-playing BDSM because all it is is audio. I mean I'm pretty sure they felt like it was probably enough but to get the conviction for what they wanted they had to be able to prove without a reasonable doubt. Yeah. And I think they're just scared that things like this may fall through the cracks. Yeah, if you get a good enough lawyer, they could spin it to where they're like, well, this is, there's no concrete evidence. At the hearing, Norris waived his Miranda rights before Detective Bynum and Deputy District Attorney Stephen Kay began questioning him. Initially, all the questions were in relation to the rape in Hermosa Beach, but they took a left turn and starting asking questions about the statements given by Joseph Jackson and the evidence recovered from his and Bittaker's residence. Initially, Norris denied having anything to do with the murders, rapes, or disappearances. However, when presented with the evidence they had collected, Norris began to confess. In doing so, he attempted to portray Bittaker as being more culpable in the murders than himself. He completely cracked under fear of being given the death penalty. Norris gave police everything, from telling them about the practice runs they did before getting their first victim, to how they got their van, where they scouted the fire road in the San Gabriel Mountains, and he gave them detailed descriptions about the abduction, the rape, torture, and murder of each victim. Bynum and Kay stated that Norris went through his entire confession in a casual and unconcerned manner. He wasn't even showing any emotion then. So he was no. just like, ah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm caught. I just don't want to die. So if I tell you everything, just don't kill me. Basically, yeah, that's exactly how it happened. Along with his confession, Norris agreed to return to the San Gabriel Mountains to help investigators find the bodies. Cindy Schaefer and Andreas Hall's bodies were never discovered. It would be three months before the skeletonized remains of Jackie and Leah were found at the bottom of the canyon, and just like Norris confessed, they found the ice pick still lodged in her skull. In February of 1980, Norris and Bittaker were formally charged with the murders of the five girls. Within a month of being charged, Norris accepted a plea bargain in which he would testify against Bittaker in return for the prosecution agreeing not to seek the death penalty nor life without parole against him. He pled guilty to four counts of first-degree murder, one count of second-degree rape, 
uh, sorry, one count of second degree murder, two counts of rape, and one count of robbery. He was sentenced to 45 years to life. Oh, so he was, he's pretty much done. Yeah. Oh, God, Bittaker's hideous. Um, <laughs> Stop looking at him. <laughs> no, I was trying to see pictures of like the trial. Were they sitting next to each other in the trial? No. I was like, because I can't imagine being like, they're just like snitching out your con- your partner and then like having to sit next to him during the trial. Like, ah, oh, fuck. They had two separate trials. So Norris had his own and Bittaker had his own. Okay. So- and at Bittaker's trial, Norris was the witness. Oh, so he did have to go up on the stand and be like, yeah, she did it. Yeah. And oh. we'll get to that here. So Bittaker's trial began January 19th, 1981 with the star witness being Roy Norris. Norris testified as to how he met Bittaker in jail and how the pair had came up with the plan to kidnap, rape, and kill teenage girls. Norris then chronologically recounted for the court the details of each of the five murders in addition to the rape in Hermosa Beach and several other failed attempts to abduct other girls. As high of an IQ as Bittaker had, He was also a goddamn idiot. Several witnesses, including some of his neighbors, testified that Bittaker had shown them several pictures of teenage girls, including ones of the girls who were missing. Why would he? No idea. Like, was he like, check out this picture that I have? And they're like, oh, that's weird. They eventually all thought he was a creep. These were his neighbors that were at the court testifying against him. I mean, but at the same time, what the fuck is wrong with the neighbors? Where they're like, hey, this fucking, my neighbor has just random pictures of little kids. Like, like we should probably tell someone. Maybe. I mean, maybe at that time, I mean, who knows exactly how people thought? I don't know if there was like just normal to be like oh that's weird but not creepy i mean yeah I, I, technically i, I guess I it know. wouldn't have been Ill- yeah. it wouldn't have been illegal yeah it wouldn't have been illegal but it's it was I, it's just it's like it like broke my brain isn't it fucking crazy like i i can't even comprehend like being the neighbor and then just like my neighbor coming over and, and it's like, hey, check out these fucking Polaroids that I took of these little kids. Like, I don't even know how that comes up in conversation. Yeah, it's like, I'm I'm an aspiring photographer. And you're like, no, you're a fucking creep. What the hell? Like, are, are these pictures like from a distance? Are they, are he like going up to them and like, snap? I don't know. I legitimately searched and searched to try to find... Bittaker's photograph like portfolio I don't yeah. know what you would call it yeah I but I know. couldn't find any pictures of it anywhere yeah I was like I'm trying to I'm having trouble it's just I I can't understand the situation because in whether it's a up close photo or a di- well, I mean I guess the distance one would be even weirder because if you're if you're like oh check out this photo of me taking pictures of this kid from across the fucking street yeah that's that's ten times weirder than going up to them and taking a picture yeah it really is I, I don't know why it just creeps me the fuck out to think about I mean you imagine the neighbor just comes over and he's like I see you have kids these are my kids in spirit and like, he, what and, if- <laughs> and considering he had like hundreds of pull what is he like pulling out stacks like. Like trading cards, like like look at these. I don't know, man. It's so hard to wrap my mind around it. Yeah, but but now I'm kind of confused and like, how many people were they scouting as possible victims? Because they got five, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, I mean, I guess they got more than five, but they didn't. They only killed five. They killed five. But how many kids or or whatever were they? looking at like how many people were on those polaroids that they were like that she's gonna be she's she's a possible victim no clue one of the resources i looked at norris said it was upwards of 20 girls that they attempted to take but there's no real there's no real way to know so there was a lot of failed attempts yeah oh that's so you have bittaker who was showing these pictures to his neighbors then the neighbors are there Another witness was actually a cellmate Bittaker had after he was arrested, 
who stated Bittaker told him the details about the torture he had put the girls through. And, and I've actually, I've actually um, heard stories like this where they, a lot of people get caught because they think because they're in prison, they can just say whatever. Like, oh, it's a, I'm not, I'm already in prison. What's going to happen? Or yeah. I'm already in jail. What's going to happen? But um, yeah, a lot, a lot can happen. A lot can happen. This whole trial turned into what I would describe as a schoolyard clusterfuck when the defense contended that Norris was actually the perpetrator of the murders and that Bittaker had only become aware of Norris's activities shortly after he was arrested. That's what the defense was arguing, that Bittaker knew nothing. Oh, so he tried to spin it. He's like, oh, Norris snitch. I'm going to throw this all at him. According to the defense, Norris told Bittaker that he had murdered several of the girls they both encountered and had sex with. The most damning evidence that was presented at the trial was a 17-minute section of the audio tape the pair had created of Ledford's abuse and torment. Stephen Kay warned the jury saying for those of you who do not know what hell is like, you will find out. That's a lot of tapes. It was 17 minutes, man. That, that, a I sec- that's a section of it. Yeah. So, that, so the tape had to have been longer. Yeah. Over 100 people were in the courtroom as the tape was played. Members of the audience and the jury wept, buried their heads in their hands, and even rushed out of the courtroom before the tape had finished. All while Bittaker was undisturbed at hearing the contents of the tape and smiled throughout its duration. So if he's trying to convince everybody that he's not a monster, that is, that's Norris is the monster, and but he's smiling during them playing the tape, he's not very, doing a very good job. So maybe he's not as smart as he seems. When Bittaker took the stand, he denied any knowledge in the abduction and murder of Cindy Schaefer and claimed that he had paid Andrea Hall to pose for his photos and that she agreed to have sex with him for $200. He then stated that Norris had walked Andrea into the San Gabriel Mountains before returning alone. Similarly, he explained that Jackie and Leah had also accepted money for sex and to pose for his photos, and that he last saw the girls alone with Norris in his GMC van. As for Ledford, he claimed she had agreed to theatrically scream for the tape recorder before leaving her alone with Norris. I guess he's trying to come up with whatever he can to cover it, but that's just the weirdest... Weird excuse. That's a, yeah, that's the weirdest excuse. I, I mean, I paid her just to scream into the tape, even though there's portions where it says, like, oh, if you don't scream, I'm going to make you scream. In his closing argument... Deputy District Attorney Kay asked the jury if the death penalty is not appropriate in this case, then when will it ever be? Mm -hmm. After deliberating for three days, the jury found Bittaker guilty of five counts of first-degree murder, one charge of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, five charges of kidnapping, nine charges of rape, two charges of forcible copulation, one charge of sodomy, and three charges of unlawful possession of a firearm. Deliberation as to whether Bittaker should be sentenced to death or life without parole took only 90 minutes, and on March 24th, Bittaker was formally sentenced to death. I'm still not understanding, after all this evidence, how the fuck it took three days to figure that out. Like, oh man... So there had to have been at least one person saying, oh, I'm not convinced that he's guilty. Probably some other creep who was like, oh, you never know. Yeah, like, I take pictures of kids all the time. Yeah, like, look, like, you're oh. in my collection. And you know that they're just standing there with, like, a sack to just, like, beat the crap out of them. They're like, I'm going to write this fool's name down because <laughs> I'm going to have to tell. tell. <laughs> so, over the years, Bittaker appealed his death sentence several times. He gave several interviews from death row in which he expressed no remorse for what he had done. He answered mail regularly and even signed the letters as Pliers Bittaker. 
Oh, because of the nipple thing? Yeah. Oh, that's Well, he had cool. ripped off the nipple, then used the pliers to tighten up the coat hangers around people's necks. and Yeah. I mean, in Norris's was worse. Like he kept going and going and going. I feel like Norris, though, in his situation, if what their testimony is to be believed, right? I feel like maybe Norris was so much in shock and freaking out over the fact that he was killing somebody that maybe he just didn't know when to stop. Oh, yeah, that's that could be too. Um, and so he technically only killed one person. Technically, yeah. I mean, he did. A- he assisted. He I mean, he hit the other girl in the head with the hammer. Yeah. Okay. When you, oh, just going back a little bit, when you said sledgehammer, I pictured this big ass sledgehammer. But when you said he got it out of the toolbox, I was like, wait, that'll make no sense. I mean, me. yeah, it didn't describe the actual hammer. I'm assuming it was probably like a large mallet. Yeah, because I, I know that they make like these small sledgehammers, like this, with just a big metal piece at the end, and I think that's what it was. But uh, when you said he got it out of the toolbox, it's like, oh, whoa, the size of the hammer just shrunk. I'm yeah, very confused. <laughs> Bitteker also filed over 40 frivolous lawsuits over issues as trivial as being served a broken cookie and crushed sandwiches by the prison cafeteria staff, which he said was cruel and unusual punishment. No, that's the prison system for you. People do that stuff all the time. Now, Bitteker died of natural causes on December 13th, 2019. So he was never put to death? Never put to death. What what state was this in? This is here in California. He was yeah. in San Quentin. Sounds about right. Now, Norris also died of natural causes just last year, actually. February 24th, 2020. Oh, wow. Since his conviction, he repeatedly claimed that the only reason he participated in the murders was out of fear of Bitteker. So he, he never let go of the fact that he was still... So he was still trying to convince people that he wasn't a monster. Right. See the difference that Bitteker owned it. He said that he had no remorse. He joked around about it by signing the letters as Pliers Bitteker. Yeah, he just he's like, well, there's no way out of it. Well, I, that's at that point, I I don't understand. Like, he, clearly Norris isn't going to get out. Well, at that point, he does have hope because after 45 years, he does get parole. So if he, he, I guess he does have reason to lie because if he can convince them that he's not a danger and it was all Bitteker, there's a chance that he can parole. Yeah. Stephen Kay, the deputy district attorney, said that there was no one on California death row that deserved execution more than Lawrence Bitteker. Six years after the trial, Detective Bynum, the chief investigator of the murders committed by Bitteker and Norris, took his own life. In a 10-page suicide letter, Bynum specifically referred to the murders committed by Norris and Bitteker as haunting him and of his fear that they may be released one day from prison. Oh, wow. So it really affected. I guess when you're working that closely with the cases and and you have to see all that, and I, I guess it, yeah, it could definitely take a toll on your mental health, especially if... if if you're a detective, you I think your mental health's already kind of fragile just because you have to see a lot of crazy stuff. And then you have to live through this. And then you have to look these monsters in the face. It, I guess it, it, it could have a very horrible effect on you. As for the tape recording of Ledford's rape and torture, it remains in the possession of the FBI Academy and is used to train and desensitize FBI agents to the raw reality of torture and murder. Now, sadly, I don't feel any real sense of justice from any of this. But it reminds me of the movie No Country for Old Men. The movie just ends, and the world keeps spinning. That's essentially what happened here. These animals committed their crimes and spent the rest of their lives eating three square meals a day with access to entertainment and healthcare, conducting interviews, and living a fairly easy life. And honestly, by the end of doing all this research and knowing how they spent their last days, it makes me sick to my stomach to look at that picture of Bitteker smiling away. Yeah, I can't. Like, even in his, like, uh, prison photo, he's smiling. Yeah, it wrote, like, it just makes me so 
uncomfortable to look at him. Like we've said before, we're not making fun of the situation. We're we're just kind of was it like a, a a way of coping with yeah, with uh, with it like in a way. Yeah, you gotta you gotta kind of not. I mean, not make fun of it, but like you you can't let it affect you. So, um, laughing about little things here and there. I mean, obviously, we're not laughing about the crazy stuff. No, we're laughing about the fact that these two are complete idiots the, and the, that they turned into complete babies at the trial. Yeah, and Norris is hideous. And, I mean, not Horace. Bideker is hideous. Yeah, Bideker. He scares is... me just with his weird mustache and his. I mean, I have a big forehead, but this guy. <laughs> <laughs> this guy has like a 10 head. Look up a picture. I dare you. All right. Well, hopefully you were able to stick throughout the entire episode. And if you did, thank you for listening. And take care. Thanks for listening to The Monster Goes On. Right. Take care. Bye.